We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In time. As we enter into Pride Month here in the United States, several people are asking this question. Is the word homosexual even in the Bible? Or is it a mistranslation made up by others later on to further their own homophobia? I'll answer these questions and more on today's Rebellion. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. As you know, in a couple of my previous episodes this week, I've talked about pride, and I've talked about Pride Month. I've talked about how pride is the worst of all sins, and how C.S. Lewis described it as the complete anti-God state of mind. I've talked about how pride is one of the seven deadly sins identified by the Catholic Church all the way back to 600 AD when Pope Gregory included pride as one of the worst of all sins, one of the seven deadly sins. I've talked about how pride could be the only sin because it leads to all others, and how it was pride that led to Satan's fall, and how it was pride that led him to tempt Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and thus supplant God, remove God from his throne of authority and place herself and Adam by association on that throne so that they could, in their pride, define everything themselves. Good and evil, up and down, everything would be defined by man rather than by God. Well, as we've talked about pride, it's obvious that Pride Month here in the United States refers to something. Pride Month refers to homosexuality, the LGBTQ community, and its march for pride. So, I can't be too cute and ignore that reality and that fact as we wrap up the week. So today I'm going to talk about LGBTQ identity the community, the gay and lesbian and trans community. We're going to talk about whether or not that is a biblical concept or not, and whether or not it's a sound legal concept. That's today's topic. We've touched on these things before, but I'm going to spend today's show entirely on that question. The question is, is the word homosexual a mistranslation in the Bible? Does it even exist or has it been created later on through translations because of Western civilization's homophobia? Before we answer those questions, remember that if you would like to subscribe to The Rebellion, you can do so by going to patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. That's patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. And don't forget my book, Grow Up. Life isn't safe, but it's good. 
Get it at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Target, or any other online bookstore that you use to get your reading material from. Let's take a break, thank our corporate sponsors for supporting the rebellion, and when I get back, we'll talk about whether or not the word homosexual was created in recent years because of evangelical and Catholic homophobia. Does it even really exist in the Bible? A lot of people are asking that question. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. The question, is the word homosexual a mistranslation of what actually appears in the Bible? Well, in a sense, you're going to be surprised by my answer. In a sense, the answer is yes. It's yes that the word homosexual doesn't exist in the Bible because the word homosexual didn't even exist at all until the 1860s. Did you know that? The very word homosexual didn't exist until about 1866. It's a 19th century categorical error, according to Rosario Butterfield, former professor of Syracuse, and I'll talk to you about her later on in the show. It was created by an activist by the name of Kurt Benny. His last name was Kurt Benny, and his intent was to shift the narrative from behavior to identity. As far as we can tell, the word didn't even exist until he coined it. He coined it in the 1860s. Again, because he was an activist and he wanted to shift the discussion, the narrative about homosexual behavior, about same-sex behavior, to identity rather than a behavioral choice. That's where the word homosexual came from. So when Bible translators came along later, after the 1860s, to give us the translations that we now generally use, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, uh, the New King James Version, etc., etc. When they came along to translate the Bible, they used a word that was coined back in the 1860s to describe what Paul referred to in the first century. And the word he used was a Greek word, arsenikoita, arsenikoitas. Now, some of you that know Greek may challenge my pronunciation of that. I think I'm pretty close. Arsenikoitis is the Greek word that Paul used in Romans, the book of Romans, as well as 1 Corinthians, when he refers to male-on-male sex, same-sex relationships, same-sex activities between two men. And it's interesting that Paul actually coined that word, that's a compound word. Arsenicoitus is a compound word that comes from two words that were used in Leviticus. Arsen, acoitus. Arsen, acoitus. Arsen, men, acoitus, sex. Male on male sex. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 uses those two words to define prohibited behavior. So Paul actually combined those two words, coined his new word, a compound word, a synecoitus, to describe what was prohibited within the Christian community, within the body of Christ, as he was writing to two Gentile, i.e. Greek or Roman populations, not Jews, but Romans and Corinthians. That's the relationship to the word homosexual, to the original Greek words, 
arsenicoitus. It wasn't until the 1860s that the word homosexual was even available in the English lexicon to use in translation of those original first century words. And again, Rosaria Butterfield says that this word, the word homosexual, is a 19th century social construct, a categorical error, she calls it, that was created by Kent Benny in his attempt to shift the narrative, shift the discussion from behavior, male-on-male sex, men having sex with men. That wasn't an identity. That was simply a statement that that type of behavior should be avoided, that those who came within the Christian community shouldn't do that. It wasn't they shouldn't be that. It was they shouldn't do that. Do you understand the difference here? It's a difference between behavior and being. So prior to the 1860s and prior to the modern era, really, everyone rightly understood that the Bible was talking about behavioral choices and not inclinations. No one assumed that the book of Romans or Leviticus or 1 Corinthians or the book of Jude or Revelation was referring to a class or a community of people. Everyone understood, everyone understood the clear meaning. Same-sex behavior is behavior, pure and simple. It's not your ontological identity that we're talking about, or in the words of Gore Vidal, anything but a Christian, by the way. Gore Vidal made no profession of Christianity. But he said, and you've heard me quote him before, there is no more such thing as a homosexual person than there is a heterosexual person. These are behavioral adjectives. Close quote, Gore Vidal. So what we've come to today is this discussion of the LGBTQ community is actually the success of Kent Berry's strategy back in the 1860s when he thought we need to shift the debate, shift the discussion, shift the narrative from behavior to identity. So we'll coin a new word and we'll use that word to describe a person rather than describe behavior. And the new word word will be homosexual. And since then, the narrative has shifted. Well, here's the issue. Here's the issue as we talk about Pride Month. We've essentially shifted from behavior to being, from a person's choice to a person's identity. And that shift is huge. That's a major shift. And here's why. When we fall into this LGBTQ community nomenclature, labels, calling people, identifying people, defining a community, a minority class as LGBTQ or homosexual, I would argue we've lost the war before we even fight the battle. And here's why again. You can't grant a certain class of people official minority status, and then turn around and deny them the moral right to act in a manner consistent with the minority status and the moral status you get, you just granted them. Do you get it? When you grant identity, when you say that is your being, not just your behavior, you've shifted that discussion from 
personal choice and personal responsibility and personal culpability, you've shifted it from a moral discussion to an ontological discussion. And remember what ontology is? It's the science of being, the science of reality. So if I am something, what right do you have to restrict me or to tell me that I can't behave in a manner consistent with who I am, consistent with my being, who I am as a human being, my status, my class, my community. That shift has been tectonic. It's been huge. That shift from behavior to being has been probably one of the biggest moral shifts in modern history with regard to the discussion of humanity and the discussion of human rights. And the thing is, smart people know this. And I assume that everybody listening to this show is a smart person. This is not complicated. This doesn't take a degree to understand. You don't have to major in sociology or psychology or theology to understand this conversation. It's just basic logic. It's basic common sense, sense that's common in terms of how we understand our human existence. Let me give you an example. We don't talk about the lying community, do we? We don't talk about the greedy community or the vindictive community or the selfish community. And you should be asking yourself why. Because I think it's obvious. It would be unbiblical and it would be foolish. But we do talk about LGBTQ this way. But why? There's no logical reason to discuss the behavioral choice to lie or the human inclination to lie. The human inclination and the behavioral choice to be vindictive. Likewise, the human inclination that all of us have to be selfish in our choice or to be selfish or our choice not to be selfish. There's no reason to discuss our sexual desires, proclivities, and inclinations any differently than these other proclivities and inclinations. Because I would venture to guess that everybody listening to the show right now is inclined to lie, is inclined to be vindictive, and is inclined to be selfish. So my question to you is this. Is that your identity? Should you receive official minority recognition for being a liar, for being vindictive, or for being selfish? Or should you treat those things as behaviors rather than your being? as choices rather than your ontological identity, as things you should rise above rather than being defined by? I think the answer is obvious. Again, I think the claim that you should be defined by your inclination to lie, by your inclination to be vindictive, or your inclination to be selfish, and that you should have minority status and protection because of your community existence within those inclinations. I think that's clearly unbiblical, and I think it's obviously foolish. So why do we do the exact opposite? Why do we buy the lie that our identity 
is grounded in our sexual inclinations because there are some things we're inclined to do that we probably shouldn't do. Isn't that why sex has always been a moral discussion? There's some things certain people want to do that they should choose not to do because sex is a moral discussion. It's a behavioral discussion. It's a discussion of good choices and bad choices. There's no logical reason to treat sex any different than these other categories that I've described. Lying, selfishness, vindictive behavior, greed, avarice, any of the other seven deadly sins. There's no logical reason to discuss sex any differently than those. There's no logical reason to say that you're born that way sexually than to say that you're born that way with regard to your inclination to lie and cheat and steal. So that's a little bit of a logical and philosophical discussion of pride and the sexual agenda that's implicit in Pride Month. Because I'm a Christian, I'm going to shift over to a biblical discussion now. I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about this. Now, I already have, in a sense, because I've talked about Paul's use of the word in, um, in uh, Romans, in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and how that word, arsenikoitis, that Greek word, that compound word that Paul coined, the combination of two words, Greek words, arson and coitus, to describe the prohibited behavior of men having sex with men, males having sex with males. That word was replaced by homosexual in the 1860s, and I think unfortunately so, because the word homosexual implies identity rather than behavioral choice. Whereas Paul was clearly not talking about anybody's identity, he was clearly talking about the decision of males having sex with males and how that had been prohibited in Levitical law, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and it never changed throughout the entire history of humanity with regard to God's standard and God's people. So let's go back to the Bible again. I would argue that there's nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture, where we are told to define ourselves by our libido. Show me anywhere, show me one verse, one passage, from Genesis through to Revelation, where we are told to celebrate our libido and to to define ourselves by our inclinations, our appetites, our desires. Everywhere in Scripture, we're told to define ourselves by our Lord, not by our libido. Now, I'm obviously talking to Christians right now, and I'm assuming that if you are Christian, you can understand this. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in your inclinations. Your being is found in being born again, not that you were born that way. You get my point? We're new creations in Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, that seems to clearly say that whatever baggage you had in your past is passed away. It's dead. It's been crucified in Christ. You're a new creation. You're something new. You're born again. Behold, the new has come. So I would claim that it's pretty tough for anybody to claim fellowship with Christ if he hyphenates his Christianity with his sins. Gay Christianity? Well, why not 
hyphenate your Christianity with lying Christianity, or greeting Christianity, or a vindictive Christian. I mean, it just sounds absurd, doesn't it? But we do it with behavior that since Levitical law was written has been prohibited within the family of God. Male-on-male sex is a behavior that was proscribed. It was prohibited. It was an identity. It was a decision. It was a choice that you shouldn't make, that you should avoid. Again, I'm going to say it. No one can claim fellowship with Christ if he hyphenates his Christianity with sins that have been clearly defined in Scripture. Our identity is in Jesus, not our sinful inclinations. So here's my point. Those who claim gay identity have bought the lie that was created in 1860s. That argument didn't even exist until then. They have bought into that categorical error, that social construct, that 19th century social construct. To quote Rosaria Butterfield again. They're defining their Christianity by a sin that God condemns. And again, I would argue it's no different than defining ourselves as being lying Christians, hyphenated, or cheating Christians, hyphenated. Again, the absurdity seems to be obvious here. So the bottom line is a question of being. Being a liar is wrong, right? Being an adulterer is wrong, biblically, right? Being a thief is wrong. Most people, whether you buy into the Bible or not, think it's wrong to steal. Being a thief is wrong. Being prideful is wrong. If your being is wrapped up in these aberrant choices, then most people have a problem with you. Why don't we hyphenate our Christianity with any of these sins? Why? Well, it's obvious. It's because we recognize it would be an ontological absurdity to suggest that this is what it means to be a Christian. So it's a question of being. So why are we suggesting being gay is any different than being a liar, being an adulterer, being a thief, or being prideful? How is it any different? The problem here that I have is many Christians have drunk the Kool-Aid and bought the lie of homosexual identity rather than men having sex with men, women having sex with women, being a choice that you can make or not make, and the choice to do so has always been prohibited, condemned. In Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, I'm going to repeat Gore Vidal one more time, his famous quote. There is no more such thing as a homosexual person than there is a heterosexual person. These are behavioral adjectives. You get it? It's a question of personhood rather than personal choice. 
It's a question of being as opposed to behavior. It's a question of identity as opposed to inclinations. It's a question of how, of how we define ourselves, how we define who we are as human beings, how we define who we are as Christians. This argument that you're defined by the things you want to do is a very dangerous place for us to go. Because logically, there's no reason to stop. If I can define myself by my inclination to do one thing, then why wouldn't my inclination do another thing and another thing and another thing be equally logical and legal and moral? Why can't I claim those things, you fill in the blank, as my identity? What's to stop me from demanding that you give me legal status and legal protection for wanting to do X, Y, and Z? You have to answer that question. A civilized people have to answer that question. So is the word homosexual in the Bible? No. But there is a prohibition in the Bible that's very clear. And the prohibition in Leviticus is you can't have sex with other people of the same sex. It's not a good idea. It's unhealthy for body, mind, and soul. And Paul said the same thing in the book of Romans and the book of 1 Corinthians. Jude repeated it, and then Jesus in Revelation 22 summarizes the whole thing and says, Outside are the dogs, those who practice sexual immorality and deception. He also says something about pride there. Maybe it's because they're almost synonymous. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. And the only response to this very deceptive agenda of our day is to talk about the facts and to share the truth. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.